in between thinking of the techniques, I'm thinking, this is just going to be a bunch of crap. And then all of a sudden, I, I noticed this. It was as if the stillness reached up out of the depths and, and, and that was, that was, that was incredible. And that, that persisted for me throughout much of the weekend. And that was, that was the space I was before, which, which was to me was, oh my God, this is, this is the, what I was, what I've been searching for all these years. Hello everyone. That was a clip from my previous interview of Thomas Howell, who returns to the podcast today. In it, Thomas is talking about his initial experience with ascension meditation and this deep level of consciousness that opened up for him. Last time he was on, I wanted to go through his whole spiritual biography, which is quite an extensive thing. So I had to resist the temptation to pause and zoom in at moments like that, because there was a lot more I wanted to ask and dialogue about. So recently I had my opportunity. Thomas came back on and we had what was more of a conversation around our different approaches to opening up to the depths of consciousness within us, how we found that's affected our psyche and engagement in the wider world, what we make of things like non-dual philosophy and the various ways it's interpreted. And near the end, I asked Thomas how he sees his interest in astrology and other arcane subjects like that as fitting in with his wider spiritual view. I start out by picking up on some of the points Thomas had previously made about meditation and whether it should be an arduous practice or not, and give an example from my own biography about that. This concept of um, arduous meditative practice to get into the non-dual then falls away into something less arduous. And you're, you're talking about the transition from doing arduous kind of meditations towards charming the mind. Yes. Yeah, slipping into and the non-dual state opened up. So when I when I interviewed you, you said that, and that's really interesting. But I've got to get more of Thomas's biography. Okay, so we'll, we'll do that. Um, but I, what I would have shared is that I felt a similar kind of process of. Well, it's a funny one really because my initial contact with this transcendent state was spontaneous. Okay, they actually opened up just after drinking whiskey the night before. And then I wake up the next day, I was like 16, right? Because on the other man, you can sneak into the pub at age 16. I think <laughs> stricter on these things, but um, here you do. And, um, and, and I would wake up the next day and just have a sense that I found very hard to put language to, but it was like, I, I would probably import some sort of Christian language of my youth and say, well, I knew heaven existed, right? And there was a sense of all my worries and fears just falling away. And in that falling away and arising of this great sense of peace and an awareness of this life force that permeated all things that was there in the trees and my dogs and, and the grass. And as if it was like one life force expressing itself differently. And I'm just like, what's going on here? I've never, no one's ever mentioned this, you know, did a lot of lessons and a lot of things at school. This was not one of them. Right. So, um, and then, that it almost has to be just filed somewhere. And it was just filed in the corner of my mind for years that every time I drink whiskey, this thing would open up. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do with that. And ultimately, I knew it was a shift in consciousness. So I became interested in meditation and I ordered a book on meditation. And I thought it would speak to that, speak to that spontaneous opening up I had. And it really didn't. Okay. It was like being in the moment get your mind to stick in the moment. And it would use words like gently, right? But it didn't feel very gentle. Like just gently get the thoughts out of your mind. It's like gently wrestle someone out of a bar or something. It's not, you know, you can say gently, <laughs> but it's not, gentle, is it? Um, and I had this, in some ways, it, it helped me with my language because I it would say things like I, I'd, um, I became interested in, in Asian martial arts and Japanese martial arts as a Zen, there's a Zen association and Zen would have the talk about being in the moment. And I go, Oh yeah, that I was in the moment on those occasions. That's uh, an apt description and not one that had occurred to me. Um, I would have said all oh, my tension fell away, but that, yeah, I wasn't like worrying about the future or dwelling on the past. I was, so yeah, that, that works. But it seemed to me to put the cart before the horse and saying like, if you move your mind to the moment continuously, every time it slips away, um, you'll get there permanently. That will, that will be your, your natural state. And I was thinking, well, I never had to move my mind to the moment um, in doing this. So that, that this, it seems to be the result of a deeper cause, but I don't know what that deeper cause is. That's 
something happens, some sense of tranquility, and I can't replicate it. So that, and ultimately, um, I sort of struggled on with this, not wanting to go into the arduous practice, but I read Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now, and he kind of sold me on the more arduous practice because I, I read his book and I was like, yes, that's what happened to me. And it really felt like, but for him, it, it seemed like it had been bigger and more permanent and it stuck. And what I took away from his book, and maybe if I read it now, I would like have a more generous interpretation, but it was like, if you do this continuously, your, your resistances will let go and you'll slip into it and you won't have to fight and struggle continuously to be in it. You, you just bring yourself to the moment it will become an easy natural state of being so that's then what i did um super arduously i and you know i listened to our interview earlier i said you, you sorry you said you had a sense when you went into this it would be like one to two hundred percent right and uh, that was me i'd get up in the morning and meditate yeah. and i had a job in a mail room at the time where i was folding wow. um, letters and my aikido teacher was um He'd been in, in Kajif groups, which is very much meditation through physical contact and tasks. Yes. So I would meditatively put these letters in envelopes um, for the day. And then I'd go meditate lunch, go home, meditate. And I was like, I'm going to make this thing snap within like the month, right? I'm going to get that switch to flick. I'm going to get back in that place. I'm going to have a really great life because I'm going to be really happy and have no worries. And I'm going to have a sense of the permanence of the life force. And it's all going to be good. I just have to make my mind snap that way and then it's a sacrifice now and then we'll get somewhere and um probably probably i got through two years with the nagging doubt sufficiently suppressed and before it became clear to me that this was kind of an absurdity the, the contradictions became impossible to ignore like one it wasn't giving me the results i expected i'd taken all my multitude of problems and solved them in exchange for one big problem of how to be in the moment and now i just worried about that all the time Right, you know, so <laughs> and it felt like it was about equivalent in weight, okay. And um, and then it's like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Um, I'm I'm trying to be in the moment by constantly having this future goal of being in the moment. So being being now has become a goal that I want to attain, and that's a contradiction, right? So, um, what am I doing? And and then as that sense naturally arose, I remember meditating one day and having this feeling of anger arising in my solar plexus, not at anything that particularly happened there and then, just the sense of emotion that you become more aware of when you meditate and thinking, oh, I've got to, got to grab hold of this and chuck it out so I can get back to that perfectly enlightened state. And the contradiction of, well, yeah, but that's what is. So you're trying to get away from something to be with something. And and I've never actually looked at my anger. I've never seen what's there. What, what's it about? Why does it exist? And, and I would find similar sentiments then in, in the likes of uh, Alan Watts's writing I came across at the time where he talks about um, feeling nervous about going on stage and having a drink before he does so or, or feeling bad about wanting a drink and then realizing that he's trying to be a spiritual superman, but actually he's a, a quivering mess and he should embrace the quivering mess. That, that's part of this too. And that, that caused a shift then into... It was the beginning of a journey into a more natural way of seeing things. And it's like, oh, life is perfect as it is. It's, um, I'm ignoring what is to get to a better what is, hopefully. Yes. And that's not happening. And then it took about a year of living of that contradiction. So I still want to get that enlightenment thing, but I'm also interested in life as it is. And it's becoming more interesting. And the more I embraced life as it is, eventually... Uh, there was a snapping moment, but the snapping moment was seeing that my quest for enlightenment was the illusion, if you like. And um, I'd had a, been away and had a really nice weekend with friends and coming home, I had this, this sense of, you know, if life is this good, I don't even need that enlightenment thing. And then it, oh, it's not, I'm, I'm questing after an illusion. It just fell away. And then that was, um, that was really the shift into a more natural way of doing things, I suppose. That was... And then it, it carried on as I, I, because then you're left with the conundrum of, well, what is this consciousness thing I'm exploring? If, if everything is perfect as it is, w do I want to look into my consciousness or do I want to just drink a cup of tea or is there a difference? And what is that difference? So the, these kind of paradoxes remained, but um, in a different way with a sense of like goodness that permeated all life, whether it was high or low or exalted states of happiness or crashing states of depression whenever it was arising that arose in this sense of yeah but isn't it amazing to be alive isn't it just amazing to to have this experience that i keep wanting to swap for a better experience but 
it's incredible as it is that that's a, 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 my my sort of journey to um shifting from the arduous to the the sense of ease yeah that's beautiful that's it's quite involved um and uh, i'm actually going to say funnily you, you fulfilled my meditation in a mailroom fantasy for me uh <laughs> li living it in your own life so so that's, that's kind of cool did you want to do that did you i did i did i, I had this I had this notion at some point it's like i'd like to work in a mailroom and in a meditative way and you know it never happened because i don't even know if they're mailrooms uh, you know, uh, in the U.S. economy, so much anymore. Yeah, they probably don't exist anymore. Yeah, I, yeah, I know, I know. It was, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you find that you had jobs that arose that complemented your practice in a way that you didn't plan? Not re well, not really, because I, I mean, I, I came into like employment age more or less at the same time that I moved into an ashram, and they, they, you know. Uh, there was a wonderful sort of work opportunity that was available to me almost right off the get go. And it was actually funnily one that I'd, I'd had envisioned a year before in a, you know, in a, in a sort of a, a, a dream sequence, you know, and, and then it kind of came true, but, but I, I was, you know, I was kind of given the thing on a, on a silver platter, at least according to my, to my standards. So, and it was purpose designed. So you're going to work in this restaurant with a bunch of other meditation teachers and monks and and you're going to use you know this is going to be your your vehicle for practicing moving the presence into into the regular workaday life and that was you know wonderful so okay so the work was a part of the, the spiritual process absolutely absolutely i found i've stumbled into employment which i've often had quite a resistance to but then i've seen it's been like without any planning on my part yeah. formed an important part of this so um like the meditation, the, the, the mailroom thing was one. And then I had jobs that really Gurdjieff himself could have handed out, like go to this huge barn and paint it white. <laughs> you know, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. On this rickety scaffolding where you've got to like, you make <laughs> and going for a big plummet and um, working, swinging a hammer, breaking. I mean, I don't think people do these jobs, you know, but like not in the first world. I mean, just um, my employer was, was too stingy to hire a, Kangol hammer, like an electric one. Oh, yeah. And I had a good old-fashioned sledgehammer to break rocks with, and that was my job for a while. Oh, and, uh, yes, I've done but, lots of that stuff too, Richard. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It, it's always been around. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, it's just it was interesting to me because obviously the, the first reaction anyone has to swinging a hammer twenty times is uh, to get rather sore on the shoulders and think, oh, God, is this, is this really my life? Um, but as I as I sank into the experience of it. Um, yeah, particularly also with doing um, martial arts, it arose and like swinging a hammer for a day can teach you a lot about your body and your mind too, actually, like doing something that's strenuous and arduous, but also like if you pull a sledgehammer around from your shoulders, you like literally 20 times and you're going to want to be ill, you know, but so learning to move the, the, the whole body to generate a wave of energy to hit with a hammer was a, a, an important kind of martial arts thing for me too. It was like, and it's just, it's striking to me because that's been continuous how employment has arisen that um, has fitted in with my spiritual development and not in a way that I put any planning into at right. all. Right. I, I, I have found that there has been what, what I used to refer to as like the golden thread, you know, a, a sort of sense of kind of, presence this greater deeper presence leading and guiding the life and and guiding me into all sorts of places that i would not have picked out if i were trying to think about them in in some sort of strictly rational kind of way just just letting that intuition take me here take me there a lot a lot of the work that i had as, as a younger fellow that was not part of the monastery i would just be driving along and and suddenly i would you know, have the sense that I'd look at a place and say, like, I should go apply for work there, you know, and I would just, you know, uh, turn the car around and head over there, whether they had a, often they, they never had a, you know, for hire sign up in the window, I was just drawn. And then immediately when I, when I'd get in, there was that, that sense would sort of um, thicken, almost like following some sort of signal. And, and it would just get that, sense of presence would get thicker and thicker and thicker as as the as i had more and more interaction with with the people there and and you know there was a certain effortlessness uh in in a lot of these things and i was so glad that i was i sort of uh, surrendered to that 
that rather nonlinear, non-rational motion because I once, you know, sometimes I would be a week or two weeks into the job and then I'd really start to sort of see that, oh, good heavens, yes, this, I, I wouldn't have thought of it, but, but all these situations that, are, that have been piling up here are, are, are absolutely growth producing and are mm. just the kind of medicine that I need right now uh, to, to move me along. And, and so, yeah, that, that has been, that has been a, a, a wonderful blessing yeah, yeah. some sort of golden thread is the only way i could explain it yeah whatever that golden thread is it does seem to be seem to be there Bread, breadcrumbs golden thread <laughs> something like that yeah yeah there's a sense that there's a sense that as you're moving through life that that uh in, instead of fighting the current or hanging on to the side of the river you're, you're letting yourself just be taken with the current through the eddies and and there's a certain sense of having wind at your back, you know, that, that you have to do very little, but you're so supported in, in what you're doing that, that you just kind of get fit in where you need to be, need to be going. And yeah. You had mentioned before, um, you, you used the term putting the cart before the horse, hmm. uh, when, when we were talking about, you know, trying to, trying to force oneself into, uh, the present to be in, into some maybe more idealized now or mm -hmm. uh, some 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 spiritual and you know when I was reading you know, the first books that I was reading without necessarily good um, in-person guidance that was that was the, exactly the sort of idea that I notion that I was picking up about the the enlightenment thing uh, whatever the hell it was and I've, I didn't really get much of a technique out of Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now book. Um, when I read it, I, I thought, oh, this is a beautiful, really beautiful book. And I I'm, I'm really feel this, you know, throughout my whole being that this man is coming from this place. There's something about it that, that was just completely was opening worlds in me. But I'm saying, like, I'm not entirely sure if, if this, you know, this is going to be, you know, helpful in actually helping, helping anybody, you know, to, to get to that place in the, in the way that, that he seems to be there. And, and, you know, that's why I was, I really enjoyed say when I, when I came to Ascension, because um, it would have been so difficult for me to try to kind of, you know, be right here with the way things are. I remember I used to do that at what I like as a teenager, I'd wash dishes or I'd sort of come up with my own spiritual practices. I'm going to, going to really look at this dish as I'm scrubbing it, or I'm, I'm going mm -hmm. to like some, uh, I think some brands of mindfulness practice have that you're, you're, you're thinking about your activity. I'm walking, I'm walking, you know, you're, you're having a couple commentary thoughts that are supposed to direct you to what's going on. But doing those sorts of things, they never, they never took me into that, that state of presence that I'd experienced as a child or that I had experienced in my NDE, they never really um, pushed me there. Uh, if, if they did push me there, it was almost always through some sort of exhaustion that I had just tried so damn hard mm -hmm. that at some point I just had to let go. And in that letting go, then there would be this, um, this sense of, whoa, okay, what's back there? But it wouldn't last very long. So I, I did find that the, the now as is, Toll would refer to it was was very different than what my idea of trying to be present was like, and it, that it was just something you need to have a means to relax into. That and it has nothing to do with what everything that you're particularly doing in the moment, but more to do with sort of this this gestalt, uh, a total gestalt change of direction. Yeah, I, mean, I actually found doing that arduous meditation, it, I'm glad I had this experience looking back, but it opened up like disassociative states where mm. it would feel like I was the person that existed and everything else was this kind of like an object or something, like really real self-holistic kind of experience it would open up. And, um, and I think that comes about probably from doing it for quite long periods, right? I'm, I don't think people who do short mindfulness exercises are likely to have this. And when I've read about contraindications of mindfulness, this is what, it, it's when people go on like week long Vipassana retreats straight off the bat, and then they can start to have experiences that they're not ready for it on a context for. Mm -hmm. um, so f did you find other practices uh, in between then and finding Ascension that took you to a, a deeper place or um, I, I'd just like to know more about that, that thing really, of how you stepped into this 
relaxed into this deeper sense of, of being through ultimately through ascension what what that was like i mean yes yeah, so in my case it's it's not necessarily the best universal test case i don't know which which is but it, it's not necessarily great in that I'd, I'd been primed a lot um you know in in my life that that i'd, I'd had my bell rung enough times that been sort of pushed into the presence and had a memory of it from childhood and then and then having a an nde just really sort of scour the dross and and the uh, you know the the veils away to to push me and force me into in, into the state that there was there was something of that something of that scent that i could still pick up on so i did other practices you know i would count my breath just just do breathing meditation um kind of sometimes do kriya yoga type stuff i didn't know it was kind of kriya yoga and stuff until i later years later was initiated but kind of going through the going through the chakras doing something that uh verges on hyperventilation uh doing all sorts of stuff and from each one i would get moments where where yeah they they were taking me into that into that samadhi where there it was it was just uh it would take a very long time at least by my standards it would it would be you know you have got six hours of meditation in a day and often it would it would be the third nighttime session kind of near the end and and there we are and it would it would it was beautiful and 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 so yeah it was it was doing things and, and changes were happening in my life which was maybe where i was uh most looking uh to see if anything was actually happening i would notice that buttons that i had were, had subsided mm. so you know situations would come up and i wasn't freaking out and 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 so the, those sorts of things were were kind of my my augers but it was, you know, um, compared to what happened later, it was quite slow going um, as far as how fast, how quickly things fell away, how, how quickly, how, how deeply I could relax. Um, I, I was quite, quite tight in many ways, trying, just trying so hard, um, right. like, 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 a, like a snare drum. It was a, it was a real kind of pressure cooker, which had some benefits and and i'm glad that i did it but it also had some drawbacks and kind of definitely places where it was probably hindering me from 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 relaxing into what was already there i was i was so strung up and so so tight that if i had just been able to to relax in some of those moments i would i would have had a, a much deeper appreciation of what was what was really um running the show I would, I, okay yeah. um what happened for me next is i actually just after the period I was describing, I was particularly influenced by um, a guy called Tony Parsons, an English non-dual teacher, and quite, quite extreme, right? And, and, and he, my thinking was going this way already, but then he would, he caused me to question things like, okay, this passage in his book, like you, you can be sitting drinking a cup of coffee and the thought can arise, like, oh, I should go meditate be in the moment, but how is that any more in the moment than drinking a cup of coffee or you can be sat at your keyboard typing and trying to pay attention to the keystrokes but then you can start daydreaming about a holiday you might take next year but how is one more in the moment than not and it, it, it was like this logical deconstruction of uh, of what i thought i was doing in my meditation practice and say okay and I, I came out of that with a view of like all life is beautiful as it's arising and i'm interjecting these value judgments between like being with the physical sense of my fingers on the keys is in some way superior to being with the inner thought stream. Hmm. But actually it's like, it's all this great mystery that's arising before me. So I wasn't, I think the, I was about to say, I wasn't entirely clear whether I was, why I, I was meditating at that point then. But um, I think I might've been clear in it in that I wasn't doing it for the same reason my reason shifted substantially so i'm not trying to find something that's going to make everything okay because this sense of everything being okay already occurred to me i actually had this discussion with a, a fellow called michael graham who quested for enlightenment for 30 years he was one of the original people out of muktananda in india and eventually he converted to evangelical christianity after a vision of jesus but what he described in that was coming to a sense of existential rest of everything of an okayness of that. And that's the similar thread I could find in a different form. Yeah. Michael, that um, we came to say, Oh, everything is perfect as it is. There's no need to add anything to it through attaining this or that. 
Um, but then it, it leaves open the sense, well, what, what do I want to look at? Not, not to find this coming from that place of existential rest then. What do I want to do with my life and my moments arising? And, and um, so I was interested still in meditation to look at consciousness then, to look, well, what is it? Well, what is this thing at the root of me that thoughts are arising out of? But there was some confusion over the process, but what, what opened up for me was I would still get up in the morning early to meditate before going to work. And um, I was working at a shoe shop at the time, which is a lot of like stacking boxes. So it's still, it's still giving me that kind of experience. One, one night I, or one morning I got up and I was, I just hadn't slept well. I was really tired and I thought it's gonna be a futile effort to do this half hour. I'm, I'm gonna like be falling asleep on the chair. So I, my day will be better if I just lie down and sleep for 30 minutes and then go to work. Um, so I'll do that. So I set the alarm and I started to drift in to sleep, but something in me remained awake. And I sunk into this place where I would see thoughts arising, identify with them, mm. and then have an, an unverbalizable sense of disidentification into spaciousness. So I go, that was just mm. a thought and spaciousness. And then, and so was that. And then spaciousness. And I'd, it would end, I would fall asleep and the alarm would go off and I go to work. And there was no tangible kind of like, I wasn't a better, nicer, happier, healthier person f through the day for doing that, for having, but there was something about it. It was just like, whoa, what was that? That was like transcendent peace. Okay. And that for the meditative journey described the next few years then of, of knowing that the, what I was looking for lay in the depths somewhere, but when I would go there, I would just be unconscious. And it was actually when, when I was attending a lot of Tim Freak's work, he would do these uh, exercises where he would talk people into dropping into their depth, but have them make eye contact with the person across from them, okay? Which kind of acted as an anchor in the world. So I'm wide awake because I'm looking into your eyes, but I'm consciously being coached through dropping back, okay? And that, that's when I got this sense and what, really brought things on for me and developed a lot of the, the work I've, I've done with other people then um was accessing the sleep state this conscious accessing the sleep state which is the most natural thing in the world we all do every day because we're falling into a place where we don't exist anymore Never, everyone does that but no one's conscious when they do it so just by holding some awareness in the world i could fall back and experience that tranquil blissful state of non-existence and that that brought that sense of ease to me and then that sense of like recapturing what i had as a like a 16 year old and i think i, I wrote an article on this and i i, I put the the ts Elliot lines from little Gideon, on the the lines that everyone knows from yeah, little yeah. Gideon, like we shall um, <laughs> arrive back at the place from where we started and know it for the first time yes. it was like that it was like oh this is what i was looking for when i was when i was 16 i was like really close but i didn't quite get the the thing of it so so that was um that, that was that was great so that that and i could i feel i could relate to them what you were saying about with the ascension of something that feels totally effortless because that's what it felt like to me like it's, it's this effortless just falling away into bliss but i'm still here yeah. and fully connected to you does that so does that resonate with what you yes absolutely yeah. yeah yeah that i uh that was absolutely it i just i i definitely wanted in my heart to have a uh, a very reliable way of of doing that and not just have it be like this wonderful invited sporadic happening and so i got hooked up with this effortless practice and and there we had it and it was wonderful so yeah how, that, how does that arise to you because i could like describe i could like i think i could verbalize the experience reasonably well because everyone knows the experience of falling asleep so and everyone knows it's kind of like it's warm kind of thing where you're wrapping yourself in this Black, I don't mean your literal blanket, but it feels like you're wrapping yourself in a blanket and going somewhere that's really peaceful and you're gone. Okay. So I can describe this. It's that, but you're, you're wide. So how, how does it, how does it feel to you to engage in the meditation? What? Well, I'll, I'll share from, from like, actually, I remember very vividly the first time I did this particular practice. I was 18. I was sitting in the basement of a chiropractic office. I was skeptical as hell that this thing uh was going to be any effective and and so I, I was given this um sort of like a mantra type thing uh i'll call it a, a friend calls it a ma magic mantra thingy i think that's a perfect word and i was given this thing and they said like even if you are if completely skeptical of it and are thinking it's full of crap it'll still work for you and i was like going good you know 
And I did this, you know, started doing it. I, I didn't have to control my thoughts. I could let the thoughts be there. So I had, of course, this stream of thoughts like, oh my God, at least it's just one weekend, you know, <laughs> or, or this is probably not going to work. And all of a sudden, even, even while the thoughts were there, um, I, I, I felt first my body settled down. I noticed that my body was completely relaxed. Um, I, had, I did not recall when it would, had been that relaxed. And, and then arising as if, you know, say, behind the thoughts was this vast, weighty stillness. And, and that was, you know, that was it, you know, and, and so those, those thoughts were, you know, were, were still there, but they were like little tiny insignificant droplets happening at the top of the ocean. And here I was just relaxing into this extremely peaceful, restful, but also acutely aware place and everything just all of everything relaxed. And so that, that was, that was my, my first ride with the practice. And it was not always quite like that, but the same basic sense of you know, falling, sinking into, and that's how my nervous system picks it up. Everybody's nervous system is different. And so they, they have, there's a vast range of experiences and of, of sort of like going into the same place. I wouldn't want to uh, confuse anybody, but it was just there. And just, just as you're describing, just relaxing into um, a deeper gear of our nervous system. Uh, you know, I like, I like to describe them as gears or, or use, say, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's analogy that our, our nervous systems are like large mansions with, with many rooms, but we just become attenuated um, through habit to, to living in just three of the room, possible rooms, but they, they happen to be a, a, a completely dark one, uh, you know, a cluttered one in a, in a completely confusing room. And, and so we have all these other rooms. We just need to kind of start to relax into them and they're they're much more spacious and more pleasurable than the than, than the first three rooms the first three rooms have their use but waking sleeping and dreaming consciousness but they're we're, we're designed naturally to to fall into these to utilize these these other spaces in our nervous system so you know when when it when tm is described and ascension is very much um um in in the tm line right. it you know, Mahesh Yogi would use the language, say, like, um, you just need the proper angle, which, which never made sense to my mind. I would, I would use a different metaphor. Uh, you just need the right angle to access those things. And, and there you go. Once you, once you learn how to, once you, you go in consciously one time and a few times, then, then you, you, you really kind of have a, a, a virtuous um, cycle beginning for you. So, yeah, it's kind of, kind of like that. And do you find that provides a kind of foundation then for, I suppose, both human interactions and interactions within yourself? Like last time we spoke, I, you were telling you were telling me about a, a process of psychological healing that took place, and it mm. feels to me that that's kind of archetypal. And well, just related rather than archetypes, my own journey of I went in to find enough sense of solidity and foundation in the non-personal to have a foundation upon which to stand to then deal with the personal because just dealing with the personal is overwhelming <laughs> so it was this kind of cycling in and out for me and the more this sense of stability within opened up the more i was able to be with emotion and perspectives and thoughts in a way that would allow them to make some sort of productive shift oh my god yes <laughs> all, all you know all those fears all those kind of uh straight jackets that i you know put on myself as, as, a, as a as a child all that all that conditioning just uh, uh enough dunks into that 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 deep vast state just just that has a tendency of just evaporating those things of relaxing them and you know, that's another way of putting it tensions habituated tensions resistances that that don't need to be there they would just be melted and often i you know it was such a gradual process in many ways i didn't really i couldn't say that i was consciously aware of of what was happening but um like i said before i would i would kind of realize that that tension wasn't there when some situation would would come up in my life and and there would just be absolute you know no reaction 
um, no stress, just, just flowing with it. I, I, even the, the, the first day I was back at my house after, after learning, learning the practice, I remember my dad um, said something that in a certain way that would always push my buttons. I can't remember what, exactly what it is. He was very good at that, you know, parents. Um, he wasn't even yeah. trying. And, and I was stunned that I didn't react. You know, I was, I was almost like um, a cartoon character looking around for the reaction, you know, like, are you, uh, you know, you coming? Uh, and, it, and, and it wasn't there at all. And, and then he, he was actually a little bit perplexed by that too. Uh, so he must've been in on that I always react to this, this sort of thing. And so he tried again. Uh, you know to, to say it and and it's like nope we're good and and so a lot lots of things like that kind of came up along the way of, of just um, life kind of testing me life coming and and giving me the same old hurdle that I would always fall on and and having no not getting caught up in anything not not being held up by it and when you talk about like the personality I'll, I'll just go a little bit here there there was a sense that um, you know, the, all those sort of problematic things that I, I felt about myself or, or the, the little person that, that I, you know, been all those years, it was, it was like being held in, in a certain sense, uh, like, like being held by this vastness, which, you know, wasn't just a dead inert silence, but when in contact with, my physiology and my psychology, all those hard knots just get massaged and, and, you know, love, love, love would sort of be the, be a healing balm that, that proliferated with contacting this place. So. Yeah. It just interesting on the fact that you were surprised that you weren't triggered by what your father said, like, because you'd think maybe if you'd resolve something, you know, in advance, but it's been my experience that I'll feel I've experienced some psychological shift. But then, okay, is that, is that real? Am I imagining it? And it's only really when circumstances arise that will trigger something that, and then it doesn't happen. And it's like, Oh, I, I've changed in some way. Some, something's unraveled within. And that's, I don't really know until it's tested. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I had no idea. I was, I was given this um, very simple, like you just, just think these, do this practice with your eyes closed two or three times a day or as much as you have time for and, and do it with your eyes open. And I just, you know, very much just focused on that. I just like, okay, all right, that that's easy. I'll, I'll embrace that simple. And before that I'd, I'd, I, I had before that when I was efforting so much, I even had this little book that I, I wrote down all my, my faults and foibles and mm. uh, places where I would typically fall. And when one what one would happen in the day, I would mark a, a check mark next to it. And and I was I was, you know, particularly, particularly hard on myself. And I, I got to throw all of that away. Um, you know, I think having uh, psychological awareness is actually a uh, a very positive, helpful thing, but I found that I was completely overdoing it, that I was, I yeah. was trying to. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot people do that doesn't work. There's a lot one can do that it's not that effective in terms of psychological shifts, right? Because I mean, w when I first looked up on the internet, I was going to say Google, but it was way, way before Google, um, looked up on the internet search engine about spirituality because I decided that's what I want to be interested in. Right. And I came across some story about, um, or some helpful exercise apparently about imagining your emotions being like balloons and you the balloon out and let it float away. And then that, that will affect the actual emotions. So I like did this and like, I, I think I'm actually more angry at the end of this exercise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've gone anywhere. Maybe, that's, maybe that's the design of it. Yes. Get, get you really into your feelings. Oh, those, those, those. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I get, yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> I, I did, um, did Reiki that was another whole interesting maybe we can talk about that a bit the sort of healing arts thing but um that seemed to get me kind of agitated without much release and initially I thought yeah it's a, you know this is a great idea I'll transform my negative emotions it shouldn't be too hard I mean they're only thoughts right it's not like they're made of steel or anything yeah. and then you, thought, oh, you know I'd have actually um I'd have beaten through steel with a mallet by now for the time <laughs> anywhere they're more yeah. solid than the apparently <laughs> the world um, and, and really imprisoning. And that was something that I struggled with and attempted to engage in a very arduous way also. Um, and ultimately was caught in the contradiction then between like, well, 
yeah, everything's perfect as it is. And yeah, I believe that. And, and I, I want to know myself as I am, uh, but I also want to be different, right? I don't want to be carrying like, cause I, I ended up setting off a period of depression through going into the, the right. thing. after all this stuff, after the, Oh, isn't life wonderful. Um, to my great surprise, I became depressed because I found this great black pit within of like emptiness in my own the core of my being. And, um, what I'd done to that point provided enough of a foundation, enough stability to engage with that because I could find a beauty even in that of like, well, isn't amazing that life can be this intense, right? And this, this much of an intense drama that uh, it's not this kind of spiritual monotone of like just everything sort of bland and the same. It's life can have elevated highs, but also the depths of despair. It's very much more like the hero's journey, you know? And mm. um, so I could be engaged in the suffering, but also have the ability to step back from it and appreciate it and feel that maybe there was, there was something in it. And ultimately through the reconciliation of that, of one loving things as they are and wanting to be different came by fully being with that in a sense of emptiness, fully embracing it and not trying to change it at all, but just entering fully into it. Um, it transformed. And that was my first sort of big experience of non-dual consciousness, if you like, of, of this, infinite sense of love that opened up at the center of my being and it felt like i was an indivisible part of that like a wave in an infinite ocean as was everyone else and everything i'd ever needed was there so that's just speaking to what you're saying of why why does you know getting in touch with some deeper sense of consciousness affect healing because that that consciousness yeah. has a quality to it and on various occasions through my life it's fully opened up and be, well i say fully it's it, I do say fully because it's impossible for me to conceive of anything better, right? Or more. And there may be something more, but I can't conceive like something more than an, an infinite ocean of love. Right. So that's my experience of the fullness of it. And at all the times then it's not as apparent, but it, you still, it's still there quietly humming in the background, this sense of like being held in this love. And then when any sort of psychological issue arises, it's being seen and held from that place and it can dissolve off its own accord then it can transform so much of what we're after when we're children uh, is basically you know uh, a sense of security a sense of safety and a sense of um, love which are which are so often so closely intertwined because you know love love from the parents generally leads to a, a sense of security and a sense of worthiness and a sense of belonging and and a lot of our deeper issues um, psychologically are, are in in those places or, or those are the real uh, programs or habits that that tend to kick up the most, um, you know, uh, virulent sort of strong ego reactions. But when we when we start to uh, to tap into that love that's already there, those those programs just just get you know loved out of necessity. You know, we, we don't need them anymore. We don't need to need those walls that we erected when we were months old or two years old or three years old or four years old to protect ourselves because our individuality is finally tuned into that that space that we, we probably wanted the whole time. You know, we, we wanted our parents to be that for us. And even if we had very good parents and knew that they were very good parents up here, you know, in here we had a, we had a deeper a deeper yearning. Uh, deep deeper needs and when we turn into that that space which ultimately provides that for us then so much is transformed so much sure. so much changes. sure i mean actually that's it's interesting to say about good parents as opposed to bad because my sense of existential angst opened up more at a time where i developed better social relations okay so i had like a whole really good friends um when my sense of deep inner angst opened up about and it was almost like i had to get that first to see that that wasn't yes didn't solve the problem yeah. right because yeah. when i didn't have that it's like well if, if people loved me then i'd be good and then right. and people did i, I think seemed to be. <laughs> <laughs> um and and then it's like okay but it's it's transient it comes and it goes so where it's not solid and it's you know and then that search for this um ultimate secure base if you like within oneself yes. and i think it's, it's intensely hopeful because you know, people who suffer with childhood abandonment issues and, and this kind of thing because well there's no secure base to return to but in the in the transcendent 
there is. It's something um, Ibn Alexander, who had the very famous near-death experience, because he was a, you might have heard, you know, he's a, a neurosurgeon. Yes, yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone liked his book because, if, okay, yeah, like a, a neurosurgeon could really explain this, but I thought that like, the more profound thing in the book was how his experience helped him get over the trauma of being adopted. Because his initial, he's, he wrote that the core experience of his life up to that point of being like thrown away by the person who was supposed to love him the most. He was a discarded thing. And that had left this stain within him, the, the near-death experience and the opening up to this transcendent self healed, if you like. I don't know, he, was, he was love throughout the whole experience. It provides a totally different context. So where should we go? I'm also interested in your embrace of things like astrology, because as we said at the start, there's, you know, coming from two places, either a, a rejection of that in, not astrology per se, but any, any kind of spirituality in favor of the pure non-dual or the sense of wanting to get away from the more kind of flaky things. So how did that, how did you, wrestle with those concepts of like, oh, am I a, a pure non-dual person who's going to be purely non-dual or am I going to embrace these, these funky kind of philosophical things or <laughs> was that a conflict in your mind? Well, you know, it wasn't not, it wasn't a conflict in, in exactly that sense. Um, I, I, I did let a lot of um, things go um, to more, to have a tighter focus for a period of years. I, I did, I really wanted to embrace, um, whatever version of the ashram life was being presented to me. I really wanted that. And so it was a pretty easy thing to, to kind of let certain things go and just really focus on going as deeply into my meditation practice and everything that was involved in that as I possibly could. And, and, and so, you know, it just turned out that years later, a lot of those things, which I had sort of temporarily put aside, uh, sort of came back. Uh, you you were talking about, um, uh, you, you mentioned in a different context, Tony Parsons talking about, you know, how is, how is this thing different than, than, uh, mm. you know, drinking a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or something like that. And, 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 on a, and a, in a different tangent, I would say, well, there is a difference, Tony, and, and for most people, and we have to, we have to, <laughs> if you want to experience presence in that cup of tea, you're really going to have to, you know, do something to, to get presence clarified in there. But, um, I'll, I'll say that at a certain point, um, presence started to show up in 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 all sorts of very mundane things um uh, there's that there's that line that first there's a mountain then there's no mountain then there's a mountain again and the second mountain and the first mountain are both essentially the same but they're also fundamentally different mm. and so we need that no mountain stage to kind of clarify and remove all of those projections that we put upon reality we have to come and find capital r reality but once that capital R reality is found if we let the process unfold even further. Uh, we start to pick that up in, in, in all sorts of things that before we might have thought like, oh, I don't want to look at that. I just want to go and do meditation. We start to, start to see it in different activities. We start to see it in different um, um, in, in people, places, things everywhere. And, and so part of my kind of coming back in and say like doing something like astrology was very much tied in with that process of opening with with sort of you know i i am I'm, I'm a kind of a, in a certain sense dispositionally kind of a wild empiricist uh in the sense that I, I love experimenting and trying things and i like to throw away the the maps for a while to just see if there's there's you know terrain that that the map might uh, block me from experiencing um and and so jumping into to astrology i'm like you know my 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 mind that was uh, a philosophy uh undergrad would say like oh this is just this is just uh this is not very well logically constructed but my my experimentalist started to to find that i was getting results that seemed to be far beyond the normal channels of confirmation bias and so that perked my interest up and i was still skeptical uh but i was also still interested in exploring it and and so uh away i went with it and I'm not entirely sure uh, where to go from it from there, but I, I've started to find that, you know, people, people reality are kind of like musical things to me in a sense that um, the more present I became internally, 
the more I started to see that same presence playing out through other people, um, playing out through you, playing out behind this computer screen. And just by accident, I found that when I would do uh, prepare astrological charts for people and give them the readings, this this would be amplified, and and I would start to to notice um, strains of the music, um, strains of their lives, in, in ways that I I never had quite before, and so it kind of became a tool to to really explore that 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 sort of burgeoning, newly arising sense of of the depth and richness of of people um as far as being these extensions of of that presence i hope that isn't too esoteric sounding and and a bunch yeah, of gobbledygook. there's a couple of things i could pick up on that i mean one is that there's that interest there in like more worldly things than the non-dual so um things pertaining to the human psyche okay and i know you also studied philosophy and economics at yes university, yes right and, yeah that's um, right and that is very much the case for me i don't encounter that many people who are just into the non-dual unless i go on the back gap facebook group the Buddha at the gap, <laughs> and then you do you only people who are like really like into the non-dual and, and just the non-dual and um but for me i always found life like exciting, right? And something I wanted to delve more into. Um, so I definitely saw it as a two-way street and that opening up to the spiritual could open up life more. So I found and all sorts of things. Like I found, you know, um, things like I, I, in a rather amateurish way, studied economics myself because I was always interested as a kid. Well, where the heck does money come from? You know, I can't figure <laughs> it out. And I just wanted to know where, how, how do we get this stuff and why do we think it's valuable? And, and all sorts, in, in some senses, I'm finding now, I'm particularly doing um, this podcast, I'm having to impose limits on myself because there's way too many interesting things I'd like to explore right. that I could possibly do, right? So I find life um, very exciting in all its different facets. And I don't necessarily privilege one over the other or the inner over the outer. I do privilege, obviously there are things that are more interesting to me than others, but I don't necessarily privilege or have the sense that consciousness would be the one thing that's um, more than, than uh, more worldly pursuits or the psyche or something like that. So it's well, so so like a little bit more more. I might add some context, which 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 might bridge some of this together. Um, one of right off the bat, um, I think my understanding of what non-duality entailed as an experiential reality was very different than it's often talked about or in in, in internet forums. Hmm. Um, it, uh, Ascension practice, we, we have this uh, understanding of, of stages of consciousness and stages of enlightened consciousness unfolding. And in some ways, it's quite similar to Adyashanti's notion of head, heart, and gut openings, um, wherein that there, there's, you know, one opens to the infinite in progressive stages. And, and each stage is, is, is much deeper and more fundamental and, and sort of embraces embraces everything more, everything, more and more things kind of get wrapped in this experience of samadhi. Samadhi um, presence, the now sort of reveals itself in more and more places or there, it saturates everything. And, and oftentimes um, I see that non-duality uh, these days as, as a thing is, is either a totally pure intellectual thing without an experience yeah. or, and then after that, it, it's often something that's tied to that initial head uh, realization, which is a genuine realization of consciousness, but there's there's more to go. Like, like a lot of people will have a very dual experience, actually, in which they they have this almost like this cave-like beautiful, though you know this cave-like silence that's inside, and then everybody else out there is kind of sort of in some ways still going on as they were before. Mm. Um, there's no sense of those people having having a silence in them, you know. That it's it, and that can actually be quite a dual thing. And, you know, real non-duality uh, as, at least non-duality as it was explained to me initially, uh, was, was thought of as being something in which that infinite or that perception of the infinite had saturated to the point where there was, a, where there was really no place that it wasn't, where, where there was almost a sense of the world as one's body, where objects, people, you know, there, there's a real felt sense that the infinite, one's own sense of presence is in some ways just everywhere. 
everywhere in people and there's there's it's it's there's a real intimacy there that's that's one facet of it that just this familiarity as familiar as you are with you know this is your hand it's such a mundane experience that that we have this this notion that this is this hand belongs to this particular body but there's a sense that 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 seems to expand and and pop up in other people and so that was the way non-duality was presented um uh, to me through the practice like what what tm calls unity consciousness right yeah 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 and what what adi shanti might refer to as the gut uh the gut awakening this sort of like deeply grokked um sort of thing and and sometimes you find um in, in that sort of those previous maybe not quite non-duality non-duality circles there's there, there can be a real resistance to to the heart to to the, to the places where our, our heartstrings want to go because it might be a dangerous thing don't take me out of the cave you know because if i go out of the safety of the cave you know that's where that's where yeah. hell exists yeah. you know that's yeah. where i can i can get into trouble and lose myself and 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 so that you know what there's there's a I think often a perceived danger there. And yeah, you know, I was just telling the story um, recently of um, Tim Freak was telling me about a group he ran, a non-dual, not sort of a non-dual meetup group he had. I don't think he branded as such, but it'll get people in the ballpark to describe it as that. And a guy turned up who was like, yeah, it's all no problem to me. I've done loads of this stuff and I really into the non-dual stuff and I've like read this author and I've met this teacher and I've done this kind of meditation here. And I get, don't worry about me, I get this stuff. And then a woman turned up who was like, I have no idea what this is really, but you know, I've, um, I've been through a divorce recently and all this has fallen apart and I've got no money and mm. dogs not talking, whatever, you know, there's really, really awful circumstances. I just need to do something. This was on, I want to give it a go. And um, it was all good until Tim uh, ran an eye gazing exercise. And as he turned around, all he heard was the door slam as the non guy ran down the street. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end the woman came up and said oh that was like that was exactly what i needed thank you so much that's great so and, and that really captures something about a lot of the way non-duality is done what you're saying that of being back in the cave in a sense of security but yes not yeah. sense of engagement I've, I've i recall reading a paper by a therapist who integrated non-duality into her practice uh, for finding a secure base within oneself um but recognize that that could become, for people who have been traumatized by the world, that could become addictive. Then that could be like, yes. okay, well, solve that. I'm going in here. And having to then do exercises to balance that out and find safety in well, what initially appears to be the outside world. And later on, you might come to see that it's, it's not really, it's only outside because I put a self here and then define yeah. that as other. And that, that sense can fall away too. And then into just being arising, let's say, but yes. initially you might have that sense of inner and outer and, wanting to come to see the outer as being okay right right yes the, the and, and we, we still retain all those those sort of um um abilities to discriminate between one's body and another body and you know one's body in a moving car and all those all those sorts of things in in um in sort of the tm tradition it's called lesha vidya meaning the last remains of ignorance kind of something something that's just enough to allow you to to you know function in the world and society in a body and 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 do a job but uh there's deeper there are always deeper and deeper and deeper levels of of relaxation and i don't i don't think it ever ends you know and and as one relaxes more deeply there seems to just be a um also a fundamentally expanded sort of experiential context that that makes itself you know known and and palpable uh, a new new terrain yeah. And the other thing I found interesting in, in what you said was the idea of astrology not entirely making sense to the rational mind. Yeah. Having to put, and you know, this is it's, it's a bit of aside from what we have been talking about, but I find um, this there's, there's not one way of approaching things that is like the best, say. So um, I have conversations with people that are into myth and archetype. Yes. Sometimes. And I yes. can be like, I listen for a period of time and think, oh, these people are just brilliant. Like the insights are just like, um, I, the, the way they're seeing things and relating 
personality types to mythic concepts mm-hmm. of literature. This is just, they're on a different level to me. And then they'll, they'll relate it to politics or something in a way I think, what? God, oh, come on. You like, and it just <laughs> completely flat or they'll, they'll use logic in a way, which I, you know, I really um, disagree with also. I think it's really, really pure ignorance of facts. And it, it's like their way of thinking is a different way to mind, which, which has mine, which has, um, intense benefits on one hand, but it seems to not work so well on others. I could say the same thing about like things like I've spent time in Reiki groups because I was really fascinated by energy healing. I might, might talk about that in a minute if you're interested. Um, but I mean, some of the things, you know, I would hear people come out with would make me kind of uncomfortable when people are talking about Merlin visiting from the astral plane. <laughs> literally, yeah. I'm like, get me out of here. And... <laughs> And but I thought then then I'd read like when I was getting into this I'd want to like didn't even know if it was really real or I was just tricking myself so I'd like read articles in Skeptical Inquirer or something, um, rubbishing the whole thing right, right. Um, from people who clearly had a superior use of logic to the people I was meeting in the Reiki groups right but as I became convinced that this was a real phenomenon I think well gosh isn't this going to be like appallingly embarrassing for all these PhD academics when it becomes widely accepted the hands-on energy healing is a real thing because they didn't figure it out. The people that figured it out were into chakra cleansing and (laughs) isn't it going to be like, what does that say about the way we think that it is good to think about things and the use of logic (laughs) and rationality because the logical rationality types completely failed to see this. You know, it took the, the airy fairy people who are still in a kind of childlike mythic state of consciousness to see it, you know, and sometimes a screwdriver is more effective than a hammer, even, even, even as the opposite is true. And isn't that just the dance where we have all these cognitive and and experiential tools in our toolkit. And and so much of life seems to be just, uh, you know, sort of artfully learning where, where one is most appropriate and where the other one is. Yeah. Job that the other one can never touch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 the same thing. There's, um, and and the, and when you talk about myth and archetype, that's exactly what astrology is. It's it's simply a uh, a formalized language of 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 myth and archetype, and and it's really predicated on the understanding that at base we are we our lives are basically like songs of various archetypes playing themselves out, and in understanding these archetypes and and the particular arrangement that that they're weaving through our lives, we can have lots of insight into into why why we do things different way why we're wired in a certain way how how what things would be particularly helpful and, and so on and so forth but yeah if you if you go way down in into like you know <laughs> extreme ends of that that milieu then you can you can get some stuff that maybe just ain't so you know just uh well, i mean, I mean yeah. it almost feels to me sometimes like it is and it isn't like um a friend who is like an expert and talks about it to me will describe politics in archetypal terms sometimes mm. And it's like, oh, I can completely feel what you mean. And it's, I can sense that's right, but it's so wrong to my logical mind. The way, <laughs> you know, you're describing Donald Trump or something. Um, yeah. And I, I, so I don't know, it's, it's a hard one for me to reconcile because it feels like true if you look at it one way and not true in another. It's, uh... Yeah. And one of the interesting things like I, I came about through, through meditation practice over the years and through kind of spending a lot of time deep down by the source, but also kind of, um, experiencing what I might one might refer to as sort of like intermediate levels of consciousness between you know our, our normal everyday surface mind and and the absolute place where everything falls away is that the best way I could describe those movements of consciousness you know initial form movements of consciousness is is archetypal uh, you know at a certain point I, I you know started to realize um, more and more deeply that you know this this life here is being moved by and and connected in these these vast not really personal sorts of movements that that have a form have a color have a shape have have particular stories attached with them and i realized yeah that that myth is just a window into into these deeper currents as campbell said it's the music that we're dancing to even though when we don't know that we're dancing to that tune and that's that's that can be a shocking discovery when you read some like myth from the Middle Ages or something and see patterns of your own life being exactly, like, exactly in, in, in an un- in an uncanny way too. Yeah, in a, in a strange, un- strangely yes. uncanny way. Just, yes, 
too close for comfort almost. Like, I thought I was making my decisions. You know? <laughs> I, I have a dear friend. Uh, one, one of his, he's had a, a crazy life as well with, with, with you know, strange mystical experiences and surviving car accidents in improbable ways and that sort of stuff. One, one of the visions he, he relayed to me from his life was that he was in meditation, um, you know, kind of like a lucid dream meditation. And, and he left his body, his, his physical body, he uh, moved out and he found himself just going across the world to the Himalayas. And he was approaching this, this canyon uh, like a rock wall. And at first he's like, why am I going to this, you know, blank rock wall canyon? But the closer he got to it, the, he, he started to perceive a form of a human meditating um, in the rock wall as if they've been meditating for, for millennia. And he realized that his life in the dream, anyways, his life, he came to the understanding. It was just a dream projection of this meditator. And, and, and so that, that sense that has, has certainly been, been so present in my life that that these you know that that this world is a stage that this is a play and that if we go if we start to live at you know deeper deeper and deeper levels of the mind we start to really tap into that experientially that that and and then these patterns really start to sort of show up and and make themselves known and some of the other strange experiences um from my life have been the sense of sort of living in two or three different sort of like time slices at the same time, you know, in a, in a very, you know, strangely mundane kind of way, not in like this sort of like disconnected, dissociated sort of, sort of state, but in just an everyday, everyday sense of I'm, I'm in Portland, Oregon, August, 2017, but I also seem to even visually be in the Roman Republic circa 300 BC or something like that. What the, you know, what's, what's, what's going on. And there's, there's a sense of time, you know, this one sense of time collapsing in consciousness. And if that happens for long enough, all sorts of things sort of open up when, when starts of starts to expand in, in, into all of life. That sounds, that sounds quite, quite crazy actually, but I, I experienced like we're, 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 we could be all like little spokes um, on a wheel. And our individual lives are like individual spokes. And most of us, we, we get attenuated to only experiencing a little bit of that spoke. But meditation and, and you know, spiritual development and growth is, is kind of like taking that spoke down to the center of the wheel. And, and at, a certain point, at a certain point, if we're, if we're kind of living out the entire spoke and connected with the center, we might start to find that we branch off into the other spokes. And, and we, we start to have experiences of those other spokes and, and, and expand out into the whole wheel. And, and in a very sense, we, we live out John Donne's poem that, you know, ask you not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. We, that, that, that the experiences of one, if you go to a deep enough level, there's, there's a level in which we are all one being that, that is living with many, many different masks. Yeah. And, and once we attune to that maskless or that universal mask, however, whatever way you want to describe the same thing, then, then the whole of humanity becomes us. Then, yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thomas has agreed to come back on later in the year and talk some more about spirituality and philosophy. In particular, we have a shared interest in the philosopher of science, Paul Feyerabend, so I'm looking forward to getting into that. So if there's anything you'd like me to put to him about any of today's content or anything else, do let me know. And I will see you next time.